Welcome to Brain Pain, where we explore the vast world of psychology. I'm your host, John, and I'd like to thank you for being here with me and going on this journey. Uh, at the beginning of every episode, I have to remind you that I am not a psychologist, I am not a therapist, nor am I a counselor. I do have a master's in psychology, and I am currently pursuing my doctoral psychology degree. If you'd like to email me, you certainly can at john at brainpain.us. And I want to point out that this is brought to you by Imaginary Studios, LLC. All right. Today's topic is ethics. I'm currently taking a doctoral class in ethics. I've had ethics in my bachelor's and my master's. Uh, I think I've had a total of three, or this is either my third or fourth class on ethics. And I always get a little, I don't know how to put it, uh, I'm always at the little cynical saying, do we really need another class on ethics? But as I was exploring some of the topics in this class, I was pleased to see that they go about it a little differently and that this class really should be beneficial. And I'll go into why that is as we go forward. Before we get too far into it, I wanted to get a working um, definition of ethics. So I pulled up uh, dictionary.com and it defines ethics as a system of moral principles. The second definition they have is the rules of conduct recognized in respect to a particular class of human actions or particular group, culture, etc. And that's probably the most accurate for what we're discussing because we're talking about ethics and psychology specifically. But I went to Marcula Center for Applied Ethics. It's at Santa Clara University. On their webpage, they say ethics is based on well-founded standards of right and wrong that prescribe what humans ought to do, usually in terms of rights, obligations, benefits to society, fairness, or specific virtues. And then just for fun, I went to the Urban Dictionary, and their first, I, I got a kick out of this, their first uh, definition of, their top definition of ethics is morality with loopholes. And the, the example they give is everyone agreed that the congressman's conduct was morally repugnant and his excuses were intellectually dishonest, but the facts did not support an ethics violation. The second definition is the knowing of the difference between right and wrong, a set of moral principles. And so those all come back to morals, and that's what ethics originally was based on. And what it comes down to is what's the right thing to do in a given situation. The real reason to have an ethics class is to prepare for any ethical dilemma or question that may come up before you have to deal with it. In psychology, just as there are many other professions, there can be a power exchange and a very difference in the interaction between two people. Meaning that as a psychologist, you're being trusted by an individual to become very vulnerable and therefore they could be taken advantage of if you aren't careful and if you're not aware of what you're doing. They also could obviously be and have been in the past um, taken advantage of by unethical people or people who really lack a moral compass. 
many people use the term stronger and weaker to describe this, but I think it comes more down to in the world of psychology, when someone talks to you and opens up and becomes vulnerable, they're really giving you uh, the power to hurt them and they trust that you will not. And that's why the code of ethics is important. Sometimes they'll ask you for things that would be detrimental and you have to be aware of that even if they are not. So what it really comes down to is not abusing your position or the power that's given to you by the other individual. And that's really what ethics comes down to. However, it gets a little crazy. One of the things that they have done in the class that I'm currently taking is they've taken known situations and they've presented them for consideration. Things that people have had to face in the industry before and in the profession before. I'll review a few of these situations that they presented, although they presented many more than I'll go through here. One is the concept of you've had someone, as a therapist, you've been working with someone um, who has had a lot of abusive relationships. And you have worked hard with that individual, and that individual has worked hard. And that individual has finally achieved enough self-respect, enough understanding of what's happening in his relationships to break the cycle. And they end up in a very loving relationship. Both are very happy, and they decide to get married. And you, as a therapist, are invited to the wedding. Do you go? If you go, how do you approach it with the individual? And if you do not go, how do you approach it with the individual? There is, on the surface, no harm in attending a wedding, right? But the truth is it takes you from a position of a third party who is attempting to help as a medical professional, and the individual, depending on the individual, may start to see you as more of a friend, which may actually be a detriment to that individual. Because then you approach friends differently than you approach someone who is your doctor or your therapist or your car mechanic for that matter. Um, although I would argue that your car mechanic coming to your wedding would be a lot less detrimental to you than your psychologist. If you went, would you go to the reception? For me, that would be an absolute no. I don't think I would go to the wedding to begin with just because I'd want to maintain the professional distance that would be necessary. On the other hand, it is a little bit of a challenge because as the professional, you want to encourage that healthy relationship. You want to. So there's that line that you have to decide as an individual, is it appropriate or not? Another situation, you have a friend that you have suggested a, a lawyer to. He goes to that lawyer. The lawyer realizes that he needs a testimony based on psychology and refers him to have you testify for that individual because you're the best. How would you approach the situation? For me, that's a fairly straightforward answer, which is uh, no, because all my friends and family have been told several times already when they want to discuss psychology that, listen, I, I can't even if I was licensed, I can't treat you. There's a conflict of interest. And so that's that's something I put out to everyone already, and it would, cha would not change at all. The third example that they put forward that I thought was interesting was that you work with a client 
who's made a lot of advancements in her dealing with her personal issues. She's had a lot of success, but she's still somewhat fragile, but has decided she wants to work in mental health and asks you for a letter of recommendation when you do not believe she is prepared for the uh, for the job. For me, again, this is fairly easy. I'm older. I've already been in the business world where it's real easy to tell someone when I'm not writing them a letter of recommendation and why. I find that being straightforward, you'll have some people who will be upset and hurt by it, but at the same time, if you explain why and where they need to improve, overall, I've had good responses when those things have happened. They haven't happened often. Most people are self-aware enough to know when they're not ready for something. But in those few cases where they were not, uh, I told them that I don't think that I would be the best choice as I don't believe that they're ready for that assignment. I'm very clear as to why. And I also stress that it doesn't make them a bad person or that I don't like them personally. It's just that to recommend someone for something, they must actually be ready for it. One of the big things that they talk about when discussing ethics is considering culture and legal aspects. Now, culture is important. It's very important. But it's also important to remember that law always trumps culture. Whatever the law is, is what has to be enforced. But culture is big in a, in a larger context. One of the things that I find interesting is epigenetics. And for those that don't know, epigenetics is the idea that your genetics, your genetic code, your genes, they express based on your surroundings. So it's, it's kind of the concept of nature and nurture, not nature versus nurture. If you grew up in Ohio, you would become the person that you are in Ohio. But if you were to grow up in um, Australia, you would become a very different person overall. You may still have some very core uh, beliefs, some core personality traits. You might like the same color. You might like the same foods or the same flavors. But there would be other things that the culture that you were in would develop or not develop based on where you actually were and where you were raised or where you continue to live. The other ideas of culture is coping mechanisms. I think that's a huge thing, and that ties into the epigenetics, but coping mechanisms, which I'm about to say some things that are very oversimplified, and I want to be very clear, I'm simplifying some very complex ideas. Coping mechanisms, we could probably do an entire, several podcasts on coping mechanisms, but coping mechanisms, uh, certain cultures, especially family-oriented cultures, This you might find uh, specifically in um, modern day, still in traditional Asian, Latino cultures, very strong, family-oriented. Not that others aren't, but you still see this very much. And a lot of the coping mechanisms come from having the family support, the family structure, and having the family be the focus of your life as a bigger, as a bigger, your success is based on success within the family, not just success in a career. Those come with specific coping mechanisms. One of the most interesting comparisons I saw in coping mechanisms and culture was World War II veterans versus Vietnam veterans. 
Vietnam veterans had a much higher rate of PTSD, or as it was called in World War II, shell shock. Now, it may be that it was underreported in World War II, but one of the things that people in World War II had that the people that served in Vietnam did not have as veterans was a time for decompression. In the book On Killing, they cover this to some degree. And the idea is that if you were in World War II, when you saw horrendous action, you were then stuck after the war was over, you were stuck on a ship with a large number of your cohort or people that had gone through similar experiences. And it took you, you know, I think it was six weeks to eight weeks that you were on this ship with people before you got home. Six to eight weeks where you could talk, you could decompress, you could relive and and cope with, learn to cope with some of the terrible, horrible things that had happened. You had the support of people who really understood what you'd been through. In Vietnam, you might be quite literally in massive combat seeing horrible things killing people. And the next day, your orders come through, and within 48 hours to 72 hours, you're home. So you go from being in the jungle killing people to home in less than a week with nobody else to sit and decompress with. And that's a huge deal because trying to cope on your own when you've been through such horrific things is quite difficult. So that difference in coping skills ties into the culture, not just the culture of your ethnicity or your background, but the culture of the group that you're in at the time. All of that affects ethics, right? So would you treat somebody who had um, these coping mechanisms in place the same as you would treat someone who just came straight back from combat? Well, Well, of course not, because they don't have the same coping mechanisms. And you might give someone who's been in a uh, debrief, who's shown that they can cope with a lot of what's going on, they just need some help, a lot differently than you're going to treat someone who might actually need an extreme form of assistance, including um, very possibly being um, committed for some period of time. And how do you make that distinction? Well, that's a one-on-one basis, but that's what the ethics ties into. And so you have to consider that culture. Was it, you know, uh, what are the traditions of that culture? What are the traditions? It might be something as simple as treating someone who is from a culture where men and women shouldn't be alone unless they're married. And you have a female that needs treatment. You know, what, what do you do to make sure that the cultural sensitivities are not crossed? What, what are the ethical requirements while still maintaining her privacy uh, over what she, you know, what she tells you, what she divulges to you in a, you know, it's an act of trust. You have to protect that. So it's one of those things where knowing ahead of time what the ethics require of you makes it easier to behave in a manner that does not abuse the power of your position, nor accidentally would do harm to an individual, even though your actions were not malicious, uh, would cause harm simply because you hadn't considered the ethical uh, aspects of your actions. 
Now, I want to end on a, a couple of interesting things that I found because the American Psychological Association has a set of ethics that it has posted on its website. What I found interesting is that Texas, in its um, licensing body for psychology, use, refers to them as a guideline, but does not adopt them. After looking at them, the best that I can form, it's, this is my personal opinion, is that it seems to be there's some ideals that are politically motivated. They're not necessarily purely purely about doing no harm as a, uh, as a psychologist. There's a distinct difference between some of the concepts that the APA has and that Texas has. And it's more a matter of leaving things out for Texas. As people know, Texas is a relatively conservative state. And whether you know it or not, the APA is not so much. <laughs> so uh, they're quite a bit more liberal. Uh, but as, as you will find in most academic associations. So I, th I found that interesting. Although if you read through the if you read through the ethics specifically for psychology, you find that they're still saying do no harm, don't be abusive, and that's what it comes down to. That's a bottom line. It's an oversimplification, but basically do the right thing, don't abuse your power, and really just don't be a dirtbag, right? And if you remember those things, that's a good start in my opinion. What do you think? Well, as I go, I want to say thank you for being here and being on this journey with me. It means a lot to me. I hope that we can have some interesting discussions. All right. Take care of yourself. Be good to each other and rock on.